The following is a presentation by The Tabernacle, a community of changed lives. For more information regarding service times, or if you would like to make a donation to The Tabernacle, you can do so by visiting our website at www.thetabchurch.com. Welcome to the Tabernacle. You made it. Yeah. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors. We're so glad uh, that you're with us, whether you're here, you're watching online at our campus in Manistee. Uh, It's exciting when you come to be a part of a weekend at the Tabernacle. You see so many people that want to come together and worship God. Or maybe you're here and you're not yet a worshiper and you just want to hear about God. You're in the right place. We're hoping and we're praying and we do hope and pray weekly that you'll encounter God here. Not just here, but this is a great place when God's people come together, correct? God's Spirit's here and and He inhabits our praises and uh, and in the prayers and in the fellowship and even in the coffee, right? Yeah? I don't know if God's in the coffee or not, but it is proof that God loves us, right? Coffee? You with me? Yeah, so... We're in our study of uh, Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible, we're winding down. We're getting close to the end. We're in Mark chapter 14 today. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to get one. I'm a big fan of the Bible. Our church is a big fan of the Bible. I encourage you to get a Bible with leather and paper. Not that I'm against a Bible on a device. Those are useful tools. But the problem is, is uh, I, I can do so many different things on the device, you know, like the phone or the iPad, that I can be easily distracted. And, and the stuff that God has for us, I think sometimes it's good if we have uh, paper and leather. Uh, that's just my opinion. I'm not being a legalist about it. But before we get there, uh, one quick uh, note. We're coming up on Easter. And Easter is one of those times when people tend to try church out again. And so as we always ask every year, I'm going to remind you, a couple weeks out, start thinking and praying about who you're going to invite to one of the Easter services. Now, this is really, really, really important because there's people far from God that might come and they might hear about God and hear about the gospel and their life might be changed. And so I believe as disciples, if you're a Christian, I believe that's one of our responsibilities. And and just to be blunt, we're not here trying to pad numbers or build numbers so we can look at ourselves and say uh, how great we are. Some of you might even be thinking, isn't this big enough? I don't want to invite anyone else. When does it end? It ends when he comes back. Okay. So in the meantime, uh, let's do our part. And so if God's laid someone on your heart, uh, I encourage you to do that. Just as a word of encouragement, I was just telling somebody this morning that uh, uh, there's people that I've been working on for the 13 years I've lived in Michigan, that people said were lost causes, and I've seen them coming back to church. And that's exciting stuff. That's real, real exciting stuff. So there are no lost causes, in my opinion. So uh, that was free. Let's move on. Okay, so uh, Mark chapter 14, what we're going to look at today is uh, what's commonly known as the Lord's Supper or the Last Supper. Hopefully by the end of this, we'll see that it's actually 
the first supper. And we're going to examine some of the uh, action uh, surrounding that event. And, and uh, uh, we'll start in uh, verse 12 of Mark chapter 14. It says, And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after another, is it I? And he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it. And gave it to them and said, take this is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is God's word. And it's familiar to us if we've read any of the Bible or if we've been in church or if you've been in church around Easter or on a Good Friday, that these are the events surrounding uh, the Last Supper, the night before Jesus went to the cross and was crucified. And one of the great things about God's Word is that all of God's Word has to do with all the rest of God's Word. If you will, it's a hyperlinked text you know, if you've ever been on a website and you see the little words and they've got a little uh, emphasis around them, a little color, and you click on them and then all of a sudden you're on a different web page, that's the Bible, right? Because it's all linked to all the rest. You can read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and get four different perspectives on the Lord's Last Supper. You can read in the Old Testament prophecies about what would happen surrounding this Passover and the crucifixion and, and, and his betrayal. And so it's hyperlinked that way. That's why we say the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. It's also why it's important not to just take one verse and build an entire theology on one verse. That's how we get sideways. That's also how cults spring up. So we don't get to throw out the Old Testament. Because all of it points to the new. And all of the new fulfills the old with the cross right there in the middle. The cross of Jesus Christ. And so there's a few observations based on what we've read, and I'll try to fill in some of the backstory. Okay, so it starts with Jesus wanting to celebrate the Passover. Now, the Passover was typical for them at this time of year to celebrate. and It was the most important, in my opinion, a celebration of the Jewish people, of the Hebrew people, the sons and daughters of Abraham. 
And very shortly or very quickly, this is why. It's because when they were slaves in Egypt, God had sent them a savior in the form of Moses to come and and argue with Pharaoh to let his people go. And of course, you remember, Pharaoh didn't want to let them go. And they said, let them go. But he did not want to let them go. And Queen wrote a song. (laughs) Sorry, that was urban history. Don't go there. It's the third service, all right? Or second? I don't know what service. I'll just keep preaching until they pull me off, all right? But the 12th plague, the last plague would require the life of the eldest child of every household in Egypt. Unless you had the blood of an unblemished lamb on your doorpost. And this is foretelling or foreshadowing the cross. Jesus, the unblemished lamb who came to give his blood for us. But thousands of years before, he's still telling the story. And so this meal that was celebrated, they were to take an unblemished lamb, they were to roast it, all of it, eat all of it. There would be unleavened bread there. Why unleavened bread? Because they were going to leave in a hurry. There would be bitter herbs that they would eat to remind them of the bitterness and the affliction of Israel. There would be four cups of wine that are, that, that are put throughout this meal. And this is the celebration that they're going to celebrate together. And Jesus instructs two disciples. We learn from, I think it's Dr. Luke in his gospel, that it's Peter and John. And he tells them, go into the city. You're going to see a man carrying a jar of water. Follow him. When you get to the house, say to the master of the house, where's the room? That the teacher requires. Now it's very cryptic instructions. I don't know if you noticed that. Why the cryptic instructions? Why only the halfway? Why didn't he just give him the address and a GPS and dial it in and there you are? Chick-fil-A. I think it's because Jesus was a wanted man and he knew he was a wanted man. We learned that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had already were already trying to lay traps where they could take him, where they could have him arrested. They'd already put out the word. See if someone will hand him over to us. But this meal is really, really, really important to Jesus. And he doesn't want it to be interrupted. We also learn from the text that Jesus knows that he has a betrayer. And he knows who the betrayer is. Notice the betrayer wasn't sent to the house. Perhaps he didn't want Judas to give away the location. This is an important meal. Probably the most important meal, if not the second most important meal to ever be celebrated in this universe of ours. And so a man carrying water, why do I say that? Well, a man wouldn't carry water in that culture. That's a giveaway. Something's amiss. That's like a Jason Bourne dead drop. When you see a man carrying water, right? Because no man would stoop to do women's work. When you find him, follow him. Why the halfway instructions? Well, this points to something about Jesus and in God in particular, that God leads on a need-to-know basis. God leads on a need-to-know basis. If you're a person that's got to know every detail, you've got to know exactly how it's going to play out. You need to know the timeline. You need to know who you're supposed to marry, what your job's supposed to be, how long you're going to live, how this health crisis is going to work out, how the relationships and the kids, you're going to struggle with God. As far as you and I are concerned with God, we're on a need-to-know basis. He'll tell us when he's ready. Now, he gives instructions. Have you noticed that about God, though? 
You know, people are always like, I wonder, you know, I've been waiting for a sign. I've been waiting for some word of the Lord. If he could just give me some instructions. Oh yeah, it's on my iPad. He's given us so much. In fact, I've I've gone so far as to say I believe 95% of God's will for your life and my life is written in this book. The problem is most of us don't take the time to investigate it. So even if God were to work in some miraculous way, we wouldn't know if it was chance or if it was really an open door that God was providing or a dude with a jar of water that we're supposed to follow. But the fact of the matter is, is that God leads on a need-to-know basis. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, and you've heard this before, we walk by faith and not by sight. Why is it that in my life I always want to know? I'm like the kids in the back seat. You know, this last week for us was spring break. And so we took an opportunity to go visit our second daughter in, 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 who's at college and pick her up and do a little breakaway and have a good time in a hotel and see a Noah's Ark and all that. They found it. It's in Kentucky. <laughs> you know, and do all that kind of stuff and do really Christian things like go to Chick-fil-A, you know. And, you know, little kids in the back are like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? What's this place? Where's that guy going? You know, it's like, what's the plan? Are we going to have time to switch? You're on a need-to-know basis back there, right? And how many times are we like the kids in God's back seat? We want to know everything and every little detail. He doesn't give it all to us. We're, You know what? How about you just let Dad drive for a minute? Play on your device. Better yet, look out the window like we used to do when we were kids. For the full four hours. Remember that when kids were just... Our job was to be quiet and look out the window. You should have brought a book. We walk by faith and not by sight. And that's important for us to understand. God gives us enough instructions. And you know how to know what God's will is going to be for you tomorrow? Is you start by doing what he's told you to do today. And that's not just a cliche. Do what he's got for you today. Tomorrow's got enough cares. He's got that planned. And the next day and the next day. God leads on a need-to-know basis. And then when they get there, the the disciples followed the man and the first two prepared the meal. Jesus arrives with the rest of the twelve and they begin to celebrate. And the way that meal would have gone is, is, uh, you know, there's going to be a cup and there's going to be the lamb and the herbs and a second cup. And then there's going to be the bread and a third cup. And then there's going to be a song and then a fourth cup. But before he gets to all of that, Jesus brings a cloud over the meal. This horrible prediction. He says, one of you will betray me. Hand me over to be killed. And the Gospels, it's not just here. The hyperlinked in Luke says the same thing. It says they begin to be sorrowful. Imagine that. Well, first of all, imagine this. Imagine you knew someone was a betrayer. You knew one of your closest friends was going to hand you over to be killed. And you invite him to dinner. Your dinner, your house. Even more than that, you take off your outer garment and you wash all of their feet, including the one that you knew would betray. And then you announce it. And it says that it got so heavy that they all became sad. And one by one were mumbling, saying to one another, to themselves, to Jesus, is it I? It says one of the Gospels that Judas actually leaning against the Lord, said, Is it I? And Jesus' response was, You have said so. You have said so. 
Now, I don't think the rest of the disciples knew it was Judas. I think there was a lot of people in that room and there was a lot of talking and murmuring and going on. And I don't, I think they were kind of in the dark because they're all examining themselves and saying, it is I. But here's an observation that's important for us to understand, I think, about Judas. You see, this was prophesied that it was going to happen. Zechariah, probably a thousand years before. Jeremiah, the same thing that our Lord, the Messiah, would be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver. And those 30 pieces would be used to buy the potter's field. God knew this was going to happen. You see, God knew what Judas would freely do. Don't miss this about God, because I think it fills in a lot of the gaps for us. God knew what Judas would freely do. Some people would point to uh, elsewhere where it says, and it was at that moment that Satan entered him. Well, Judas had no, Satan entered him and possessed him and made him do it. No, no, no. Judas had already made plans. The bent of Judas' heart was already to betray. Remember, Judas was upset because the alabaster jar was broken and all that expensive perfume put on Jesus when that could have been used elsewhere. See, he was greedy. He was a thief. He'd already decided if Satan entered and Satan did enter him, he was invited in. And you can Google this. You've probably read about it. The Christians, we're all, we get twisted up, right? It's so hypocritical. It's like we start worrying about Judas as if. And I'm not hating him. Our Lord didn't hate him. Our Lord loved him, but... We could care less about our neighbor's eternal destiny, but we get all twisted about Judas' eternal destiny. And so we come up with weird theories like, well, Judas had no choice. Judas was fulfilling the prophecy. And this is where the whole argument is, you know, does God determine us? Where we're like little robots, little pawns, little puppets. We have to do what he says. Or do we have free will? Well, the fact of the matter is God is sovereign And we also have free will. But God in his omniscience, that means he's all-knowing. Isaiah chapter 46 speaks of the fact that he knows the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning and he will accomplish all of his purposes. We can't wrap our brains around that. Again, we're on a need-to-know basis. See how this builds? In my view, God is outside of time. That's why he looks at time as the eternal I am, the eternal present. Creation is present to God. The cross is present to God. The end of all things is present to God. That's why he is the I am. So God knew what Judas would freely do. That's why he could prophesy about it. And that's why Judas had a free choice to do it. And he knew he was going to betray him. And he loved him anyways. Probably the best illustration of this is something that happened to me, I think it was last week. So on Tuesday, my wife is a part of this uh, women's study that's going through the personality thing. You know what I'm talking about? The Enneagram. Some of you guys have PTSD from that, right? It's invaded our homes. It's actually an awesome study. And usually she's back at a certain hour, but she wasn't. And it was getting kind of late. And you know, we'd had a house guest for four days, and now he was gone. You know who he is. And... (laughs) We had this pile of dishes in my house. And it was a Tuesday night. It's a meeting day, so there's a lot of stress, a lot of going on. And wife's not back yet, and there's a pile of dishes. And so I just do what I do. I turn on the stereo, little Guns N' Roses, and I attack the dishes. 
like a man. Come on, 10 o'clock. What's the matter with you? You don't get enough coffee? It's because guns and roses and dishes go together. And that's man's work if you love your wife, right? That's man's work. And I'm getting after it with the dishes and, the, you know, and I got the suds flying and I like to, you know, do everything like back in the day when I worked at Ponderosa and get it all clean. Oh, yeah, I drove a dish truck at, Par- at Ponderosa back in the day. Don't hate. And my wife comes waltzing in. And immediately she saw what I was up to and she started laughing. I know you buddies of hers out there. I hear hear you. And immediately she's on her phone. I'm like, what are you laughing at? Oh, nothing. Come on, what are you laughing at? And why are you so late? She said, well, when the study was over, I was going to take off. Because I'm usually trying to get the ladies out, lock the place up. And they're like, why are you waiting so long? And she said, well, there's a mountain of dishes at home. (laughs) And my husband's a little stressed out. So I know what this means. If I hang out here, he'll be doing dishes when I get home. And then she put it on Facebook. Now, full confession. For a minute, I felt manipulated. Oh, yeah? I bought these dishes. I break these dishes. Nobody controls me. I think you know me. You don't know me. But I started thinking about it a little bit longer, and it's like, she wasn't making me the butt of the joke. She knows me. She knows me intimately. I freely chose to do those dishes. Not because I love doing dishes, because I love my wife. And because I was a little stressed out, and I needed that kitchen cleaned. Now, was that manipulation? There's a fine line. It depends on the attitude of the heart of the person. God who is sinless, who knows us better than we know ourselves. Multiplied by the fact that he's outside of time in his all-knowing omniscience, all-seeing. God knew what Judas would freely do. And Judas paid the price for it. It's an awful thing to betray a friend. It's an awful thing that was the cross. And as they went through the Passover meal, Jesus did something that had never been done before at a Passover. He hijacked it. You see, when you get to that third cup, beforehand, he took bread and he broke it. They would know the Passover meal by heart. The hymns that were to be sung, the stories that were to be told. And all of a sudden, Jesus takes the unleavened bread and he breaks it. And he says, take and eat. This is my body. Judas was already long gone. He said, this is given for you. And then he took that third cup. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Blood that's going to be poured out for many. Scripture says, all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So all who believe in his body being broken for them and his blood shed out Not just for their sins, but for the sins of anyone that calls on his name. They will be saved. Confess and believe that and you will be saved. So out of this heavy meal and this heavy betrayal talk and what's coming with the cross, all of this evil, we learn this truth about God again and again. And that God brings good out of evil. God always brings good out of evil. Church, hear me. 
God brings good out of evil. I don't know what evil you're carrying today. The evil that has been done to you. The evil and sin that you've done. The evil that we're afraid of, whether it's sickness or war or famine, pestilence, you name it, all the good Old Testament words. God brings good out of evil. He is the divine martial artist. He's great at taking the attacks at the enemy and using them for good. God doesn't do evil. God cannot do evil. That's oxymoronic. God cannot be love and all good and all loving and do evil. But there's some things that will be allowed because God brings good out of evil. That's what he does. The problem is, is in the midst of evil, in the midst of pain or hurt or heartache, all I can see is right in front of me and I don't see the end. I don't see the good that he wants to bring out of it. It reminds me of the story of Joseph. Remember the Old Testament story of Joseph? Joseph was one of the youngest brothers of Jacob. And all of his older brothers were jealous of him. They hated him. They wanted to kill him. But they stopped short of that. Instead, they beat him up. They ripped off his clothes, threw him in a well. And then they sold him to some traders that were going to Egypt. And then he experienced a horrible life as a slave. He's got a whole Shawshank Redemption existence going on. Until he comes out 40 years later, the second most powerful man in Egypt. He's the prime minister. And there, they've already told their dad that, oh, he's dead. We don't know what happened to him. Forty years later, they come as refugees looking for food, trying to escape a famine. Joseph reveals himself. God uses that evil for the good of saving his family. And he says, after he forgives his brothers, don't worry. What you meant for evil, God used for good. God brings good out of evil. Romans 8, 28, we love to quote this to one another. The problem is we only quote half of it. That's that verse where it says, God works all things together for the good, we forget this part, of those who love him. So it's not just this positive talk, oh, everything works out in the end. No, God works everything for the good of those who love him. And then here's the, probably the most important part, according to his purpose. Not my purpose, not your purpose, his purpose. There's a good that he's going to bring out, but the good might be something beyond your lifetime, beyond your vision, beyond your sight. When we come to faith in God and we realize that, man, he's leading us on this need-to-know basis, that he knows how everything's going to play out, even the choices, good and bad, that we're going to make. We see God bringing good out of evil. What, how do I get that out of this story? Well, the evil of his betrayal, the evil of his arrest, the evil of the kangaroo court. He's the only innocent man who's ever lived. You might sit there and say, well, I'm innocent. No, you're not. I'm not. You're not. All of sin and fall short of the glory of God. All of us deserve hell. But God brought good out of the evil of the cross. What is the good that he brought out? The new covenant. He said this is a new covenant. A covenant is like a contract but better. You see the old covenant had to do with God's part. I'll bless you. My part. You've got to fulfill all these rules. The new covenant is a one way covenant. It's a one way covenant. God sets the rules. God sets the blessing. God sets the term. God sets I'll fulfill it. 
It's my job either to accept or reject. Accept or reject. Wait, what are all the other boxes? No, no, no. You don't come into the covenant an equal party with God. Hey, God, I'd like to negotiate the terms. You don't get to negotiate. Your job is to accept or reject. The new covenant's a good deal. That if by faith I receive God's grace, that it's his blood poured out, his sacrifice of himself, the only sinless person, that's the good he brought out of that evil. The cross was an evil thing. God flipped that real quick into the best thing. I mean, think about it. What other world religion loves to decorate our buildings and our necks and all of our little ornaments with an instrument of death? Right? Like, what are, you know, what if we were the, 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 the faith that walked around with electric chairs hanging around our, you know, necks and dangling from our ears and, or, you know, that'd be just weird. Well, that's what it is, an instrument of death. Because God brings good out of evil. The new covenant. Here's the last thing. It's probably the most important thing for us. Focusing in on Judas. Like I said, scripture says that uh, elsewhere that Judas had already left into the night. And the disciples know, you know, they don't know what he's doing and what he's up to. But Jesus said about him, about the betrayer, it would have been better if he had never even been born. Better if he'd never been born. You know, as Christians, we love to read books that make us feel good. You notice that? And there's a book. I'm not cracking on the book, but, you know, it's Heaven is for Real. And it's a great faith-building book, I'm sure. I haven't read it, but don't send me a copy. Thanks. But um, I'm sure it's great, and it builds faith. But, you know, Heaven is for Real. Why isn't there a book that says Hell is for Real? Jesus said it would have been better for him if he'd have never been born. That's where he's destined. That's what he freely chose. No one wakes up in hell and is surprised. They freely chose it because they rejected Christ. If you think about it, Judas saw almost everything that all the disciples saw. He was in the 12. Jesus was his closest friend. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Peter too for a minute. He saw Jesus calm a storm with a word. He saw him feed miraculously 5,000 people, 4,000 people. He saw Jesus cast the the demons out of the demoniac and into a herd of pigs that went running over the side of a cliff. Jesus saw a blind man receive his sight, a lame man walk, a paralyzed man, a man who'd never walk, pick up his mat and walk out. Lepers heal. He'd heard the teachings. Judas had been sent out when Jesus sent them out two by two. Three years. Judas was a disciple. What's the observation for us? Probably the most important one that we can get today. I can look like a disciple and still be lost. I can look like a disciple, act like a disciple, talk like a disciple, give, serve, participate, attend like a disciple, and still be lost. I can look like a preacher, still be lost. 
And God knows if I hear one more stories of how preachers have devastated people. It's one reason I didn't want to be one. You can look like a preacher and still be lost. You can look like a Christian and still be lost. Judas was in the mix and he was lost, lost, lost. Now you might think I'm trying to scare you. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm trying to speak straight. This is why it says in 2 Corinthians that we're called to examine our hearts to see if we are in the faith. What is faith? That I believe in him and not in my own works. That I believe in the cross and not in the gospel of being a good person. Whatever that means. That I believe in him and that, you know what, there's, there's still sin in me. But that sin has been paid for, past, present, and future. And that if I believe, and because I believe in him, I want to stay true to the end. I want to obey. Doesn't mean I always do it. We're called to examine ourselves. And how sad is it that Judas, even Judas, is it I? We know. Today it's fitting that we'll in a few moments celebrate communion. In the same way that at the Last Supper communion was initiated, we will also celebrate communion. And we're instructed to examine ourselves before communion. So in a few moments I'll just tell you plain, if you're not a Christian, what we're going to do is not for you. If you'd like to become a Christian... Be a great opportunity to come and take communion as an act of faith and say, this is what I believe because I don't want to be like the betrayer. I want to be counted among the disciples. I want to have eternal life. I want to have real life that begins right now. But we all come the same way. Sinful, humble, powerless. We either receive the new covenant or we reject him. In 1 Corinthians, Paul gave his account which he received directly from the Lord. It says in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 23, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So why do we celebrate communion? Well, Jesus commanded it and he said that we're doing it in remembrance of him. That we're proclaiming to God, to one another and to the world that this is what we believe. We believe that he was enough. He was enough. Not him plus my works. Not him plus my good behavior. Not the cross plus how Christian I can look. You can look like a disciple and still be lost. We proclaim him. We proclaim him. And those that kind of get caught in the trap, is this somehow magical? No, the blood or the wine doesn't become the blood. The bread doesn't become his body. I mean, at the first communion, he was right there and he wasn't bleeding. Verse 27, 
Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Let us examine ourselves. Just like the disciples at the Last Supper. Is it I? Is it me? Am I in the faith? And again, I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm saying this because I love you. When I take the bread and the cup, I examine myself. Lord, if there's any sin in me, would you show it to me? Usually I don't even need him him to show up to me. I'm aware of my sin. And as a Christian, I ask him to forgive me again. And this is like this little reset. The beautiful thing about communion, it's this little reset. You know, the interesting thing is, is the Lord served that communion and he knew they were all going to sin again. Just like I will. I want to say you will, because you're perfect. But it's this beautiful little reset. It brings me back to the foot of the cross is where I live. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment and examine ourselves. It said we shouldn't take the cup in an unworthy manner. Don't worry, you're never going to be worthy. But you can take of it in a worthy manner by examining yourself. By confessing sin. If you're not a Christian, by asking him into your life. By forgiving your brother. And if there's hatred or bitterness or resentment or... There's no rush. You might even sit this one out. Lord Jesus, would you send your spirit... Straight to our hearts with clarity and truth, with power, reveal to us the gaps between our love for you and our actions and our attitudes. God, thank you that you provide forgiveness for us, that there's no sin too great that you won't forgive. There's no sinner so lost that he can't be found by you. You're a great God and a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God. A God that willed that none should perish. God, would you help us to believe it again? To proclaim it again? And this day as we do, God, we want to remember you. Lord, I pray for those here that don't know you. That you would give them faith. That you would transform them. God, for all of us, that you would continue to change our lives and conform it to your will. God, you didn't die to make us good people. You died to set us free. So would you set us free from the bondage of shame, of hatred, of anger and resentment? Would you heal the scars that are caused by wicked people and the scars that we've caused? Would you soften us towards you and steal us towards the enemy? God, we love you and we thank you for the cross. And this we celebrate 
as a family, as we commune with you and as one another, the communion of saints. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Church, when you're ready, we invite you to come.